podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you on this fine weekday evening? Uh, I am good considering, I don't know if this is the first time we've ever recorded during the week, but uh, it is uh, a Tuesday evening, uh, so I have worked for 10, 11 hours and have to get up bright and early in the morning to take my son to school. I'm just doing as well as can be expected on this, the first day of the Writers Guild strike. Uh, so I don't know if that we if we would potentially get into that during this podcast, but I'll just call out uh, that uh, for what little almost infinitesimal, non-existent influence I have, I certainly stand uh, with the the screenwriters and uh, the both the uh, Writers Guild West and Writers Guild East uh, in their pro-union stance, and uh, I hope they get what they deserve. Yeah. That's all I'm doing, John. <laughs> I mean, sure. Uh, I, <clears throat> I, uh, I guess I would count myself in solidarity with the Writers Guild as well. I hope that they're able to... Uh, my and my i have not really looked into it beyond a couple of like in summary instagram posts of basically saying that they're trying to fight off the advances of you know companies trying to basically work ai into the system in a way that is going to make everything worse for everyone so um that all sounds terrible and if that's indeed what the writers are sort of trying to fight against then absolutely they have uh all the support that our tiny little podcast can offer. So <laughs> we stand with the writers. Yeah, absolutely. Here at Cinema Duel. I have a little bit fuzzy memory when it comes to the Genesis for this episode. I know that two things, I think there are two separate tracks that sort of led us to what we're going to be talking about today. Um, one is I had seen the first movie that we had talked about and saw a particular screen cap with a particular line reading that instantly made me want to watch the movie um, and just needed a theme. And so at that point I was just in search of a theme uh, for how, how could I force us to talk about this movie? Um, but I believe separately from this, and this has been something that we've had in our heads for a few months at least is uh, the idea of doing a comic book episode or a comic book adaptation episode um, that's very specifically was not about superheroes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think from my perspective, um, and this is something that we don't need to get into, but I am definitely suffering from superhero fatigue um, and the, um, the seemingly homogenization of superhero film adaptations. Um, and it, it, there was an opportunity here by looking at, you know, I don't want to say non-traditional comic book adaptations, but non-superhero adaptations to kind of see things that you can do with comic books and adapting comic books for the screen um, that are very distinct in their personality and in their execution. I, I think we definitely have two huge examples of how to do that in today's episode. So I'm excited to talk about it, but it was really just an opportunity to remember that, you know, in the glut of five to six Marvel films and television shows and the forthcoming new expanded DC universe, you know, helmed by James Gunn, uh, that there's a lot of great work that doesn't involve uh, Marvel or DC or superheroes of any kind. And it was always worthwhile to take a look at some of those films. So... Yeah, and this is uh, this was a chance to dig into a couple of uh, 
like I, I can't say I'm f- I was familiar with either of these uh, movies prior to going in, and so uh, it was when it makes sense for us to do something like that. It's I, I find it a treat to like sort of, uh, and, and then there's enough I think stylistic uh, overlap between uh, both of these movies that that it felt like a really good um, pairing between the two. I think I had texted you a couple days ago that this was that these two movies being paired together, I think is a rather inspired choice, but enough of Mm. us uh, uh, saying nice things about each other. Uh, Why don't we launch into our first uh, movie for the episode, which is ghost world. episode started chris and i were googling a couple of name pronunciations and so if we get these wrong uh please blame the internet uh the cesspool that it is uh ghost world is a 2001 uh movie directed by terry zweigoff and uh, stars thora birch scarlett johansson and steve buscemi uh it's based off the comic book of the same name by daniel klaus uh with a screenplay written by klaus and uh zweigoff um this is a movie about, or a story about uh, Enid, who's played by Thora Birch, and Rebecca, played by Scarlett Johansson. Um, two ne- teenagers set in an unnamed, anonymous American city, uh, and they are completely cynical, jaded uh, teenagers in the way that you kind of expect your teenagers to be. And uh, it is the the... I think probably where I would want to start our conversation about uh, this movie is sort of the, the changes that it makes um, between the comic book itself uh, to the what changes happen in the adaptation from comic book to movie. Um, because the the comic books, which I actually did get a chance to read uh, in the prep for this, um, is largely about these two teenagers and their small mini adventures uh, where they are mostly laughing and making fun of the ways in which society is trying to get them to care about things um is the disaffected teenager thing is in full uh, is in full force here um and what the you know what the plot eventually builds to is it, there's not really a plot it's just that at the end they they separate they go their separate ways as as life as they're growing up sort of uh sort of is want to lead them towards but the movie itself uh tries to make that whereas the comic book it's much more subtle and understated um with the movie there they uh klaus and zweigoff take a a real effort to sort of um make the, the the establishment and uh straining of their friendship sort of a central key um element of the story that by introducing a potential love interest played by Steve Buscemi um, to, to the point that there's good chunks of this movie that I was surprised that Scarlett Johansson was just not in because it is the movie is much more interesting and in focusing on this relationship between Enid and Seymour. Um, Chris, I start with you. Was this your first, uh, was this your first pass at like, had you, had you read the comics before, I guess? So, um, I'll answer all of that. So it was not my first uh, viewing of Ghost World, nor was it my first reading of the graphic novel by Daniel Klaus. Uh, we're assuming it's Daniel Klaus. It could be Daniel Close. 
you know, uh, it's one of the interesting things about reading so much is that you come up with your own pronunciations in your head, especially when it comes to names and they may or may not ever be right. Um, so I've had experience with this before. I think I saw Ghost World probably, I didn't see it in the theater, but I saw it like when it had its first run on video back in the early aughts, right? The film came out in 2001. Um, so it wasn't my first rodeo with each, um, um, and I'll, I'll add to that. I, I had a very different reaction to the film now watching it as a guy who is a, a month shy of 50 and watching it then when I was in my late twenties, um, there's definitely an identifying factor for me, uh, back then kind of identifying with, and I think this is the interesting thing about the conversion from the comic to the film, both really attempt to just kind of show that transitional period between kind of childhood and adulthood, right? And and how things change and priorities change. And sometimes we we cling to the things that are familiar to us um, and and attempt to control and push away anything that threatens that. Or, you know, in the other way, um, how we just tend to I hate the cliche of throw away childish things and start to become an adult. I think both the film and the book do that. I think the book is really effective as doing that through the series of vignettes. It's really just loose collected episodes in Rebecca and Ina's life. And the movie tries to create more of a cohesive kind of film narrative to justify the changes that, that we see. And I mean, to call out right away, Rebecca gets lost in the shuffle like really quickly. Although, Credit to Scarlett Johansson. Uh, one of the things I took away from the film right away was just how, like, she is a presence in the movie right away, even though she's not really the focal point, um, as is Thora Birch. Um, I know a lot of people have some divisive views on her performance um, in the film. I think her performance is fantastic in the film, but I came away, and, and you and I talked a little bit about this, um, to kind of get into... You know, seeing it in 2001, 2002, and seeing it now in 2023, uh, where my where my um, heart lies in terms of familiarity is, is very different in the intervening, you know, 20 plus years of seeing the film. Um, and I can I can admit this is I, there was a there was a record review the other day of like there are four categories of how you come to a record. It's a great record that you like. Um, it's a terrible record that you hate. And then in the other side, there's a great record that you don't like and a terrible record that you love, right? Like those are the four kind of quadrants. And this is, I could admittedly say this is a fantastic movie that I really don't like um, coming into it now. Um, and so much of that has to do with a little bit of like, I've put away the childish things and I've become an adult and I can still understand and even see glimmers of that horrific kind of confusion and anxiety over the transition from childhood to adulthood that is present in this film. Um, but I can't get over, strangely enough, how mean-spirited it is. <laughs> I also can't get over, uh, in some instances, how horrible the adults are in some instances of this film as well. Um, thinking particularly of Ileana Douglas, who is fantastic in the movie, playing an art teacher who is doing like a summer school art class that Enid has to take place in. Um, so while I can 
admire the film and admire the choices that uh, Klaus and Zwigoff make in trying to adapt something. And really, if there's an MVP for me in the film, it's um, Alfonso Bieto uh, as the cinematographer um, and the way that he is able to not mimic the book, which is basically just kind of two-tone, um, but how he's able to mimic a very particular aesthetic uh, with these like saturated and it, sometimes desaturated colors with his framing and just the way that he sets things to sometimes feel very abandoned or sometimes to feel very crowded and claustrophobic. Um, I love how this film adapts the book visually and aesthetically. Um, I can admire all that, but this movie really held me at a distance. When I when I identify with Seymour way more than I identify with Enid um, and Rebecca, even though I don't identify with Seymour when he does something that, to my mind, no man that age should do <laughs> with a with a young girl, um, you know that's still where my loyalties lay. So I I feel somewhat conflicted about the film um, in that regard, uh, John. Um, I, I I wonder for you that even though we are at different ages, we are at you know somewhat similar stages at life, being like husbands and fathers and and doing things like that. So where did you lie coming to this film? Um, I think you said you had seen it before. So is, is this your second viewing or oh this is your first viewing? Okay, so yeah, coming into it, where did you kind of where did the resonance? lie with you in the characters and and how did you feel coming out of it i mean i i said this in the intro so this is probably the time to talk about it um there was a there was a screen cap of the scene where enid is talking to uh seymour about you know you should find try and find a girl who shares your interests and his response was why would i do that i hate my interests <laughs> and 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 the state of like all the different like things that uh categories of things that i enjoy and then i take one look at the fandom and go jesus christ like get me the fuck away from here that is that 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 is the level which i before even watching the whole movie that's sort of what initially drew me into want to watch it is i want to know i've never seen my current uh malaise at uh the pop world of pop culture just so shown i've never seen it so just directly stated um in a in anything before so that was so i was already predisposed to like uh to like seymour and and, and yes like you there's obviously a clear mark uh, a clear point in the movie where uh we sort of we stop that identifying um i i i think i think their goal of wanting to have a more clearly demonstrated narrative of enid and rebecca being uh sort of driven apart like or drifting apart driven apart whatever verb you want to use i don't think that that's inherently a bad idea but i think that although i do think that seymour is probably the most relatable character for the similar reasons that that you do i think that it does something about yeah it it it, it doesn't it makes it less about the relationship between them and it becomes mostly a movie about this would they won't they romance which aside from the fact that she just graduated high school and he's a much older man like aside from the grossness of that which is you know should be called out but the and again i've only like it's not like i have a huge history with this comic book i read it for the first time recently but it felt like well why is this person who is so 
jaded and so cynical and just so completely bereft of uh like why is she why like why why are we introducing these like this emotional arc into this character's story in this way i guess well one of the things that's interesting that is very different between how the book handles that and the movie does is in the book seymour is literally in it for like two scenes like the like the scene in the book is they go to the personal ad they 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 fake the phone call and they watch this lonely guy you know wait forlornly for a date that never arrives and leaves that's the end of Seymour in the book. And in the book, the wedge that drives the two of them bef- apart makes way more sense. It's Josh, right? In the book, they both, like Enid likes Josh, but treats him basically like she does in the movie. Um, Rebecca doesn't really have anything to do with Josh. And then as they start to grow apart, a decision is made on Rebecca's part and Rebecca goes to Josh's house and sleeps with him. And that's what, you know, is the nail in the coffin in the book that drives it away. None of that happens. And, and, and Josh, who we should add, is played by uh, the late Brad Renfro in the film really well is just kind of wasted. He's there for like a couple of scenes to get from one section to another, but he doesn't have kind of the agency that he has in the book, which is kind of a sad thing. That being said, I definitely get why they introduce what they introduce in the film. Um, and it is gross. And and I have the same kind of reluctance of you like, Hey, look, spoiler territory, Seymour and Enid sleep together. Um, at one point, there's a whole thing that happens with, uh, the art school and, uh, she's about to get in for a scholarship that fails because she basically cheats. Um, and she ruins Seymour's relationship with the personals girl, uh, by sleeping with him. And it's a, it's a kind of distasteful moment. Uh, not something morally that I would do. Um, but I'm not here to cast my moral kind of judgments on the film because it makes sense in the film. Because one of the things I think the film does really well is because it focuses so much on Enid, it focuses on what Enid is not connecting with and what she ultimately connects to. She constantly feels like an outsider. She constantly puts herself up as not as attractive as Rebecca and no boys like her, like they like Rebecca. And because of that kind of rejection, she pushes everything else away. Everything else sucks. Everything else is stupid. No one gets me. Right. And that's a, that's a wonderful bubble to be in to protect yourself. And then here she finds Seymour who is just as much an outcast as she is. And she finally sees somebody who there is a connection made. Uh, But because Enid is literally, you know, just coming out of high school and doesn't really know how to deal with these emotions the right way, she does what she has always done. She tries to control. She tries to manipulate. Um, And it's always like, you know, if you're a kid and you have a crush on someone, but you know that that's not a realistic crush, as in, you know, being with somebody who's 20, 30 years older than you, what do you do? Well, you make yourself a part of their life somehow. And you do it by being the fixer-upper, right? You do it by being, oh, well, you you don't have a date. I'll get you that date. So I totally get it, and I totally see why it makes sense in the film. And it's a credit to the film that it is as messy as it is, and it allows itself to have these fallible moments of morality and not really cast judgment on the characters. Like, yeah, (laughs) what I've made the move that Seymour makes. No, Uh, but the film allows it to happen and allows it to 
culminate in a bunch of events that then kind of dictate the rest of the course of their lives. And and it and it and it works for the most part. I think the end kind of cheats a little bit, um, in a way that I don't find satisfactory. Uh, I was going back to the reviews. Uh, I I went to my my, uh, my patron saint of movie criticism, Mr. Roger Ebert. He loved this film. He gave it four stars. Um, he gave our other film four stars too. So I, you know I don't hold everything against him. Uh, but uh, I I I think the end cheats a little bit. Um, and I I have to point the figure at uh, Zwigoff and Klaus that they try to make this a little too cinematic as opposed to how wonderfully sad and kind of morose the ending of the book is where they kind of have like in the movie, uh, you know, despite the fact that they do drift apart, you know, Rebecca and Enid, you know, they hold hands and they kind of make up and it's like, even though we're going our separate ways, let's keep in touch. Let's, let's be that for each other, you know? And then, and then she does make up with Seymour and Seymour's like, you know, uh, I am a nerd. I know I'm not cool. And she's like, but wait, you haven't seen the rest of my amazing art notebook. And it shows that I actually, you know, liked you and they connect at the end. I feel like that, if anything, that doesn't do justice to the spirit of the film much more than the messy moralistic implications of kind of what happens throughout the rest of it the the yeah the the part when she says you haven't looked at the rest of the book and then he sees all the nice drawings about it like that is (laughs) <laughs> she says that as if it's supposed to sort of make everything excuse. all better. You yeah. make everything better. <laughs> and my initial reaction was, no, you ruined this man's life. Yeah. Like, like if you want, it, like we, we've talked about like setting aside the moralistic things of it, but based on like, I don't think that in reality, a moral argument would land with Seymour, but in the text of the movie, if you want to add a, do a moral version of uh, a moral evaluation of this, Enid's a fucking monster. <laughs> there is no major come comeuppance for her. There is no lesson learned for her, which I think is very true to the book and to the film, where like huge mistakes are made. Things are are you know somewhat patched up, but the patching up. In, in fairness to the film, doesn't make anything better for Enid. Um, and we can talk about the ending in a couple of minutes, which I which I have read a lot of about. Um, but I find really interesting that a lot of the theories about the ending don't really adhere to any comparison to the book's ending. So I do want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about, it seems like you and I are on the same page of both of us kind of detested Enid. <laughs> but I'll say this, um, Thora Birch does an incredible job in the service of the film. Like, I don't want to say that we hated Enid. That also means we hated Thora Birch's performance, at least for me, because I think she is extraordinary. There are certain moments of the film. um, And I think the biggest moment for me was when she decides to have the garage sale of her stuff. Um, and it is like literally the embodiment of throw away your childish things because she's going to go move in with Seymour and be an adult. And this is what her perception of an adult is. And when someone tries to buy uh, the first thing is like, I forget the name is like, like Goofy Gus or something like that. Her childhood stuffed animal. She can't part with it. And 
instead of like getting emotional about it, she puts the front back up like the I'm better than everybody front. And she's like, no, you can't have that. I just decided not to sell it. And then there was a, a, a dress that she always wore that someone tries to buy. And they're like, why would you wear it? You'd look ugly in it. Again, it's that when that's your only defense, you constantly throw it up to protect yourself from feeling any real damage. And I think it was incredibly, uh, uh, it, it was a cr- incredibly like specific and rich response. And I think she is fantastic in the movie. Um, it, it, to the point where it, it frustrates me so much that I really don't like this movie just because of the era that it's portraying and the attitudes of the kids that it's portraying. And it is because I, I, I recognize in that I recognize enough of that to know it and to know that I've moved so far beyond that as an adult that I'm just kind of like, Oh, I can't deal with that was so hard to get through the first time. So yeah. maybe it's a credit to the film that I recognize it enough for me to be like, uh, uh-uh, I don't even want to deal with that again because that sucked, you know, as much as I complain about what it's like to be 50 and to be, have all the problems of a father and a husband and a guy working, you know, of the 40, 50 hour, sometimes 60 hour a week job, uh, as I know you do with your weird hours, like I'll take that over being 18 again and having hormones and feelings that you do not know what to do with. Right. So, uh, all of that is just, uh, in, in service to, Man, how good Thora Birch is in this movie. And um, I know she hasn't done a whole hell of a lot like recently, but uh, that is uh, the fault of a indifferent and somewhat stupid studio system because they do not they did not know what they had uh, in an actress like her at, at that time. I, oh, that's my take. I, no, I, I agree. <laughs> and I appreciate you you clarifying that because it, it gave me it sparked in me like the how I actually want to just like slightly clarify some of the stuff we've been talking about, which is that I the the messiness of the like the messiness of the relationship between Enid and Seymour and Enid just as a person, I don't mark as a failing of this movie. Um, yeah, I think I th- and like or the 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 some of the slurs that get tossed around that we'd you know Oof. yeah that's that stuff like it's very much a movie of its time but that's and, <laughs> understand and, and, and i and i think that this is a movie that for better and worse is like, at times the fact that it nails a very specific time and a very specific phase of life is is both the thing that i think is its strongest quality and also the thing that like whether it's the the slurs or just the general attitudes that you're talking about where you're like, I can't relate to this anymore. Uh, I'm a grown ass man. Um, I, I th- yeah, I think that's the, 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 the it's certainly not like it, it's, it's datedness is both good and bad. I feel like, yeah. um, and I, and you talked about, I mean, I, I think that I think that Bushami, you, you mentioned, of course, I think the star of this movie is Thor Birch, of course. Um, and I really, Oh man, uh, we didn't talk about Buscemi. Yeah. <laughs> Please talk I, about Buscemi for a moment. I, I, I mean, I. There's rarely a Steve Buscemi appearance that I don't appreciate. I mean, I, I would struggle to think of one a time when I'm like Steve Buscemi. No thanks. But he, this is, this is, this is like again. I think you and I both strongly like immediately clocked him when he yep. had a more stronger presence in this movie than in the books of like this person who 
like when when she when he, when Enid interrogates him on like, do you think that it's everything was really better beforehand while staring at the giant offensive poster? And he's oh, like, that's it's complicated. Such a great scene. Yeah, it it's 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 fantastic. Um, I don't want to leave the actor talk behind without talking about Scarlett Johansson because I I, I think that Scarlett Johansson does a. Uh, a, a, an honorable effort to uh, portray the character of Rebecca uh, as in the books. But when Scarlett Johansson, even though she's not given as much to do in this, in the movie compared to the book, her present, her as a presence on screen instantly has me more drawn into the character than, than I think even I was when I read the comics. Like, yeah, I mean, she is not the standout feature of this film from a, performance perspective not due to her just due to you know this film is not really focused on her um but you can't deny uh, the the immediate person that comes to my mind and i thought about this when i watched it today and i should add to i talked to you about this before this was one of the hardest films for me to ever watch for this podcast i watched this over almost two weeks in like 10 to 15 minute chunks because it was the cringe and the hurt was so much I couldn't take it. Um, but the first thing when I saw her, uh, and I don't know if we've ever watched a film with this person in it, but this is Lauren Bacall to me. This is the same gravitas presence. Her husky voice was already there 20 years ago. Um I, I don't begrudge her any of her fame and fortune. She she is so good. I've seen her in so many things where she is fantastic. Uh, I don't think she gets enough credit as an actress because so much is focused on her as a Marvel superstar and as a beautiful person. But uh, when she needs to here, she brings it out and she brings it out in, in spades. Something that is, I, I, I think I clocked in both the comic book and the um, uh and the, and the movie is a sort of how I translate what's happening there into my own life, into the world that we live in is a lack of interest in being relevant and a lack of interest in being up to date, trendy and cool. Uh, and with, uh, all kinds of opinions on every single subject that hits us. Uh, and at least, you know, in 2023 on a, on a minute by minute basis. And so, if for me the appeal of something like going back and listening to jazz for a week straight which has been my personal week and i know you've been on a bit of a jazz bender yourself lately um at least for myself part of the appeal of that aside from the fact that it's chill and good and it's not loud and raging in my face is that is precisely the fact that i don't have to have an opinion on it i can i can just enjoy uh, I can find stuff that I like, find stuff that's cool and good. I can talk with you about it on a podcast, but I don't think of that as necessarily consists. I don't think that of that as being a, th- a take that I have. Um, I am decidedly less interested in having takes um, for the the world to enjoy and speculate and banter and debate. That's not really anything close to what drives me these days. And which is, can be an interesting thing for a person hosting a podcast to say. Um, but that is where I, I and I think that there's going to be some energy uh, that translates into our next movie, specifically around interest in collecting of older, uh, older things. What, uh, how, how does that sit with you? Uh, 
It sits wonderful with me, um, and I agree with you 100%. Uh, in fact, if, if anything, the correlation between Seymour's obsession with old things and then the later scene that we both loved about um, – you know, were the old times act actually better? Uh, I, I, th I think that's a really nice thing that the film gets across that the book could never do. Uh, and huge credit to um, to the man himself, Mr. Buscemi, who is is fantastic in this film. We didn't talk about him because so much of the focus is on uh, the the girls and particularly Enid. But uh, great job! Uh, before we talk about the next film um, and 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 jump into another cranky older person who loves jazz and uh, and old seventy eights, uh, we should probably talk about the ending just very briefly uh, because there's been a lot of theorizing about the end of Ghost World. So throughout the course of the movie, um, Enid and Rebecca come across an old man sitting at a. Um, on a park bench waiting for a bus on a service line that is no longer in service. And Enid continuously meets this man and says to him, you know that the bus will never come, right? This this line is no longer in service. And the man says, uh, you know, you're wrong. Uh, it, it It's coming and I know it. And at the end of the movie, when everything is kind of over for Enid and she has lost all of her relationships with Rebecca and with Seymour, uh, she sees the man. And it's, it's kind of getting on toward the evening. And sure enough, after this entire film, the man uh, sees the bus pull up and he gets on the bus and goes away. And then it's shortly thereafter that Enid makes a decision, packs her bags, um, waits at that same uh, park bench at the train at, at the bus station. And uh, a bus comes and picks her up and sends her off onto the horizon. And that's how the film ends. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about what that actually meant. So I just wanted to ask you, John, since you, like me, also read the book, um, how you interpreted that ending. Where the bus ending really sort of landed for me was um, uh, when the man got on the bus, when like when the bus showed up and he got on the bus, I was like, oh, shit. He got on the bus. The bus actually did show it up. He he was <laughs> he was he was he was right. It 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 did happen for him, um, and because that's how the that's what his goal as a character in the movie is is to have is to get on the bus when it shows up. It felt like a small victory, um, it, like a, a validation of like yeah he 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 was steadfast in his belief that the bus would show up and eventually it did, um, and when she you know when everything has fallen apart for her and she doesn't see a way out of it um she decides well okay fine fuck it i'll get on the bus like why not like like this is i'll take any which way to get out of here yeah um and and sure enough the bus she doesn't have to wait as long as that guy did but uh, the bus does show up and she leaves um but it I, is very I, clearly a bus arriving on a line that they they focus yeah, on no. the park bench for a second. It is definitely not in service. Like that is yeah. a bus that should not be there, right? I have I I did see one reference to the bus as a metaphor for suicide. Yeah. Um and I or suppose, death in general, or, right? Suicide yeah, or, or, specifically, yeah. but also yeah. death. Yeah. I I mean, that's why <laughs> That is why I use the phrase uh, "looking for a way out." Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but that, like, 
I don't have any problems with that being the interpretation. That's just not necessarily what I like. I wouldn't have clocked that if I hadn't read about it afterwards was just, it felt like a, a small way to try and give a happy resolution to the movie without like changing any of the fundamentals that she's still like alone and in the wreckage of her bad choices. Yeah, I, I I tend to agree with you. I think the bus finally arrives for her when she is ready to move on, right? So for the old guy, moving on could be anything. It could be death. He's finally, you know, he's been waiting around to just kind of pass to the next world and the bus finally arrives for him. For her, like, like to me, the bus is a transition. And she is now, she has put, she has literally put away her childish things, her relationship with Rebecca, her weird relationship with Seymour, and she is ready to transition and move on to whatever the next stage of her life is. Uh, And that's where the bus ultimately arrives. Then when she is ready, the bus arrives and is able to take her. Um, And as a way to transition to our next film, John, what if that bus deposited her in Cleveland? Okay, so moving on to our second film is 2003's American Splendor. This is, um, it's hard to describe what kind of movie this is. This is a hybrid biographical comedy, drama, documentary, fourth wall breaking feature about the life of um, comic writer Harvey Picar. Um, it was written and directed by the team of Shari Springer Berman and Robert uh, Puccini. Um, Starring Harvey, sorry, starring Harvey Picar. Actually, that is not an inaccurate statement. He uh, appears quite often in in the movie, but it also stars Paul Giamatti um, in an incredible performance as Har- Harvey Picar. It also stars. Um, uh, Hope Davis uh, as his wife Joyce Brabner. Uh, Joyce Brabner is also in the movie. It also stars uh, world champion of the world Judah Friedlander um, in a great role. Um, but this is a crazy film, and so why I wanted to introduce you to it, John. Uh, you had said you had never seen it. We could have picked a lot of different non-superhero comic book adaptations, but staying in the world of kind of independent comics, one of the greatest names outside of R. Crumb, strangely enough, the subject of a documentary by Terry Zwigoff, so there's connections all over the place. Robert Crumb is a character in this film as well, but one of the biggest names in independent comics is also Harvey Picar. Um, who kind of brought the aesthetic of kind of the lo-fi indie kind of life of the common man vibe to independent comics in the 70s and the 80s um, with the help of R. Crumb, who was a friend of his who um, illustrated a lot of his earlier comics and kind of brought him to the forefront of independent um, comic and American literature. So uh, it's hard to really describe what this movie is. This movie is a biographical look at the life of Harvey Picar from a very specific period in his life, mid-70s to um, late 80s or so. Um, But it's also a documentary. It's also a narrative feature. This film breaks the fourth wall more times than any film I've ever seen. It has the actual Harvey Picar narrating the film. It has asides with Harvey Picar. It has a great section of Harvey Picar talking 
about a scene while Paul Giamatti sits in the background and laughs at him. I mean, there's uh, that was one of my favorite moments because it's, it's, it's him a great and section. His, it's Harvey Picar and his real life friend, and then it's Paul Giamatti as Harvey Picar and Judah Friedlander as the fictional version of the friend sitting in the back. You can see it like it's framed, so you can see all four of them, but they're just in the back, just sort of chuckling to themselves and making small talk while you're listening to the two real Tony, people. Uh, Toby Radloff is uh, the character. Uh, is the is his is his friend from his work in real life, uh, played by Judah Friedlander when when that's happening. But yeah, so it's Toby and Harvey trying jelly beans while Judah Friedlander and Paul Giamatti, who play them in the narrative portions, watch in the background and laugh. Um, this is a crazy movie. Um, and it goes in a lot of wild directions. So first of all, John, uh, I, I don't know if you had the opportunity to read any Harvey P. Carr uh, before watching this, um, but, uh, you know, what was your experience or knowledge of Harvey P. Carr going into this? And then kind of what were your impressions of the film overall? Absolutely no context. Uh, <laughs> I have a, I have some I have uh, some collected things of American Splendor on transit from the library, but uh, unlike Ghost World, I wasn't able to get to actually read this one in time. Um, but as far as the movie goes, without being able to talk to how it like, I mean, based on how the movie presents the comic books, it feels like I can connect the dots and make some pretty safe assumptions around like. They, they 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 very clearly spell it out that these are comic books he does about his own life and so incidents happen to him in real life and then he makes a comic book about it and then he makes a and then a stage play gets made about it and then a movie gets made about it and uh you know on and on and on we go um <clears throat> i i don't want every conversation like I, when we were talking with dylan uh he said that anytime he thinks of me he thinks of agnes varda um and I don't necessarily want that to be true in every case, but there was a part of me that was at the at the various levels of reality in this going on in this movie. There was something that felt a little bit akin to some Varda shenanigans a little oh, bit. Oh, so much. I thought of that when I watched this again. This is a Varda film not made by Varda, <laughs> like in, in, in the way that it attacks its subject. Well, and I think it's like, I think we probably should just quickly establish like the the reasoning for the weird like levels of fiction and reality that are going on in this movie i mean of course the 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 comic books themselves are uh like are adaptations of things that happened in his in his life um but then also not like in so i know that the over the course of the all the issues that he did he worked with various artists to um to uh, different artists over time and so the way that he looks looks different across uh so he looks different in different issues and they decided to um and so that so at least that seems to be a driving per, uh thrust behind having not just Paul Giamatti as Harvey Picar or Donald Logue as Harvey right. Picar when Logue it's in the as well. he, he he's also <laughs> playing Harvey Picar when it's the stage play um but then also having Harvey Picar not just narrate, but occasionally do like just interviews, documentary interview segments where they ask him about stuff and he just sort of like, uh, you know, answers questions and it all sort of works its way into this movie that like it never, it never feels alienating. Like I never feel like I'm taken out of it at any point. It's just fun and vibrant and lively. And you do get occasionally get some like illustrated 
uh, segments, but not, not not quite as many. But from a like when we were talking about Ghost World, I they they weren't necessarily just trying to do the Zack Snyder. We're going to replicate every frame right. of the co- of Watchmen to do it. But I could see there were parts where I was like, this feels like something from the comic book. Like there are certain shots, like especially in the diner. Um, yeah. But that that movie doesn't really have a lot. Uh, doesn't really, and, and I think to its credit, it doesn't really get out of its depth as in regards to like cinematic flourishes. But this movie here, I feel like it it, and it's not that it's better because of it, but I feel like it does the 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 flashy visual stuff in a way that is that makes sense. It's coherent with the story they're trying to tell, with the reasons why, and it just. It's just, it's just cooking with that stuff, and I, yeah. and I respond so much to the visual presentation of this movie, uh, even when it's not leveraging the actual comics, which it does quite a bit. Um, it relishes in the visual aesthetic of the comics. It is dirty. It is filthy. It is, it is kind of like, like kind of gutter bucket. Mm-hmm. Filth, which is Cleveland in the seventies, right? And it kind of relishes that that vibe, even when it's not aping the R. Crumb images or a lot of the other artists that are in here. Um, really briefly, because uh, I I don't know what your history is with this actor, but this is a rare movie where you get to see the actor portraying the character. And the character he's portraying is also in the movie. So let me let me ask you briefly, uh, John, or not so briefly, uh, ask you your thoughts on the performance. And I will preface it by just saying this. Holy shit, Paul Giamatti. <laughs> yeah. What are your thoughts on Paul Giamatti in this film as Harvey Picar? I, I think he does a great uh, I think he does a great job. Um, there, like you get a, I mean, if like, look, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I did actually get, a, um, well, I couldn't get the American Splendor one. I actually did get, uh, I did get a chance to, uh, read through Harvey Picar's Cleveland, which was something that was po- uh, posthumously, uh, published. Um, so I got a little bit of the, the, the vibes, if not the specific like plot points or something. Like if we talked about sort of, you know, thorny areas of, uh, ghost world uh i think that the, the i think that american splendor does a really good job of like establishing that he's a crank but but he's they're able to do and and maybe there's you know who knows if there's skeletons in the closet what couldn't tell you but they do a good job of in this movie of a crank that you can't help but root for you you know he may find ways to like screw things up or say say the wrong thing to a person and sort of whatever but 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 i never feel at a i never feel completely removed like i do with like enid with with yeah. paul giamatti as harvey p car he's you're always there with him even when he's getting up to business yeah giamatti is he's astounding in this role he picks up so many of the mannerisms and the ticks and tremors uh, that make up the life of Harvey Picar. But the one thing he does 
that I think is hard because one of the wonderful parts of the movie is there was a whole section of time when Harvey Pekar was a featured guest on David Letterman. And for all but one showing, they show the actual clips of the real Harvey Pekar and David Letterman. Um, and when you watch Harvey Pekar in those clips, which are the back in the day clips and not the new clips where he's being interviewed for the film, uh, man, he is not a likable person at all. He's a bit of a dick. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, so is Letterman, but so is Harvey Pekar. And that's part of the point is like, here's a guy to rise up to the level of Letterman on those guest appearances. What Giamatti does so wonderfully is humanize Pekar so that when we go through the narrative portions and we eventually get to the third act, which is... Not to spoil it, because if you've read Harvey Pekar at all and you know his life, you know one of his most famous books is Our Cancer Year, uh, to the year that Harvey Pekar gets cancer and 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 how that kind of um, develops and, 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 and how it ends. Uh, but Giamatti does a fantastic job of making sure he humanizes him just enough so that, to your point, as schlubby and disgusting and foul and borderline racist as he is, there's that, I couldn't help but laugh, but there's this section when he's at the grocery store and he's trying to decide which line to get on and he gets on the line behind the Jewish old lady with 8,000 coupons trying to get a deal on a $2 glass. Um, it's hilarious. It's, and it's hilarious because of how Giamatti embodies the role and 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 storms off off of it. It's It's just... It's a great performance, uh, one for the ages, and it, and it makes me mad that he was not uh, given an Academy Award for that. I, I mean, I would have to look at who his competition was, but I'd say he'd, I'd, I'd at least want to put his name up on a on a longer list. Uh, of course, and that see, and that that grocery store scene where it's not just his performance, but it's also like the fact that there are like the fact that there are visual elements that are introduced into that scene, like. <clears throat> the the preparation that like this is not just this is not just his performance this is this is a fully considered yeah uh uh set lit etc shot by by the the whole film production uh it's a beautiful uh, example of um and not many people do this in fact i'd give Zack snyder some credit for you know doing taking a comic book and adapting it in a way to like make it work like a comic um but this film adapts comics in a way that i rarely see other films adapt adapt comics where it blends in panels and it blends in right the thought balloons and the animated characters talking and and much like comics will break the fourth wall at at times um something similar could be said of like ang lee when he did his hulk adaptation he tried to bring panels and zoom shots and stuff into the filmmaking it's just shocking that this debut narrative feature at the time by Pochini and uh, Berman uh, is able to encapsulate the feel of a comic as well as well if not better than any other comic book adaptation of its time well and something that I was thinking about as well is that as as we've gone on as uh, we've more boldly strode into the internet future, et cetera, et cetera. The, the possibilities for people writing comic books uh, or doing animated whatevers of their own lives of like less fantastical uh, subject matter that becomes more like as that, as the, it becomes more possible for poor people to do it. Right. Um, and that's not to say that it's, I don't, I have no feelings on that one way or the other, but it's, but I find it especially impressive, um, 
for I guess this would be true of both the the comic book and this movie that um to basically pull some pull like this is I think the fact that it comes out in 2003 I think is makes it more impressive than if this had come out if something like this had come out now it would be neat it, it could potentially be neat and cool and, and and interesting but uh but something like this it, this feels like ahead of its time yeah and true to form um I'm not going to talk about this in our recommendations. We're going to talk about something else. But um, I, I, as Harvey Picar basically documents his life and uses that as fodder for his books, um, in 2004, a year later, there is uh, a book called American Splendor, Our Movie Year, uh, that documents the making of yeah. this movie. Um, it's, 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 it's wonderful. For all that talk, like the entire cast is great. Hope Davis is phenomenal, uh, as, as his wife and partner. Um, and, uh, and, and how she shows up and how she's got her own weird peccadillos and her weird, you know, things and, and, and how that merges. Um, I, I do want to get to, um, something that you broached about you, you broached when we talked about ghost world and it's, it's interesting the effect that jazz has on both of these films. One of the things that I found interesting was that when you had mentioned that it's, it's, it could be considered an affectation in ghost world. Cause obviously that's a fictional narrative completely created by Daniel Klaus, um, regardless of how much or little was taken from life that he knows. Um, but you have the character of Seymour, who's a dedicated jazz and 78s fan. Uh, but here you have something very similar with Harvey Picar, but in this case, this is very real. This is, you know, this is all taken from the sky and this guy's weird obsessions with, with, with jazz. So, um, I know you wanted to talk a little bit more and I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, but like, how does, how, how does the work of jazz and how it's, how it's presented here? Um, how does that tie in for you, uh, with how it, it works within ghost world? He, he talks about like the, I think one of the, and this is certainly true in the movie. There's some, uh, mentions of his lack of interest in superheroes. I mean, the thing, the first scene of the movie is, uh, Harvey Pekar as a kid. Yeah showing up at the Halloween trick or treat and someone asking him, well, which superhero are you? And he's like, or, and I was like, I'm, I'm Harvey Picar. And he just, <laughs> it's such a great line. What do you it's, mean? It's, I'm Harvey Picar. <laughs> the, yeah. Again, whether that did or did not happen, it's a great, it's a great encapsulation of his thing, which is that like the, that music can do or that, that the comic books can do more than superheroes. And and when he's talking with his there, there's one of his colleagues who like, well, he, he talks about how they talk about how he thinks rock music is bad and terrible. And Harry Picar is more generous about the, the new hip rock and roll uh, versus his older counterpart. But like there is a, I think there is a between Harry Picar and Seymour in ghost world, sort of a, an affinity for like, or a, a lack of, impressiveness towards new trendy popular things uh so maybe that's a good point to to end on but i will say uh in full disclosure uh this movie uses uh its soundtrack 
uh, beautifully. Um, and uh, there is a uh, particularly emotional moment for me that is scored by John Coltrane's My Favorite Things. Uh, so if you do need to be able to try and differentiate John between the differences between Miles uh, Davis and John Coltrane, <laughs> you can use this movie as the signpost and that wonderful sequence uh, at the uh, ice rink, uh, which is scored to the Mr. John Coltrane uh, adaptation. It's time to move on to a recommendation segment. Chris, what do you got for us today? Um, I have got uh, some real obvious recommendations uh, that aren't actually films. They're, they're books. But if you have not already done so, I, I really urge you to check out um, both the uh, collected edition of Ghost World by Daniel Klaus um, and any uh, collected anthology of American Splendor by Harvey Picar. Um, I have uh, a fairly large collection just called the American Splendor Anthology, but um, you can pick up any of his collected ed- editions. I really recommend Our Cancer Year, which is really good. Um, but just check the writing out. Uh, you'll get a real nice look at what comics can do outside the confines of what we traditionally think of uh, with regards to superhero stuff. So those are my primary recommendations. I am going to make one recommendation for a television show. Um, I'm not the biggest TV guy in the world. Um, There are a few shows that I watch. Um, None have left me uh, as delightfully bonkered, though, as uh, the new television show airing on Peacock called Mrs. Davis. Um, This is the new television show from, and this blows my mind because I hate the Big Bang Theory, but it is from one of the creators of the Big Bang Theory and Daniel Lindelof, uh, the creator of the co-creator of Lost. Um, So if you could try to blend those two things together, uh, go ahead. It's a batshit crazy show. It is about uh, a world where the equivalent of Siri, uh, which is called Mrs. Davis in this universe, has kind of brought humanity to a closer calmer, uh, peaceful existence. Supposedly there's no war, there's no famine, everyone has a job, everyone's happy. Well, not everyone's happy. There is one nun, um, Sister Simone, uh, played by the amazing Betty Gilpin from Glow uh, and uh, The Hunt from a couple years back, also written by Damon Lindelof. Um, she is not so happy with Mrs. Davis because she believes Mrs. Davis killed her father, who was a magician, um, played by David Arquette. I haven't even gotten into the crazy shit yet, and this show already sounds crazy. I was going to say, Chris, um, you are, you are, I have so many questions that <laughs> you haven't even started. Oh, I, I haven't even started. Uh, not too much of a spoiler. Uh, uh, Sister Simone, played by Betty Gilpin, is a nun whose job it is at the start of the film, uh, the, the start of the series, is to hunt down rogue magicians and expose them for the frauds they are. Who gives her these missions? Her husband. Who is her husband? Her husband is Jesus Christ. Literally Jesus Christ, the son of God <laughs> that she is able to what be married to uh, and travels in an interdimension through through devout prayer to be with her lovely husband, uh, who is personified as a delightful man um, who works in a um, Mediterranean restaurant. Now... All of that is prelude to the actual crux of the series, which is eventually Mrs. Davis, uh, through all of her millions and millions of followers, finally gets an audience with Sister Simone and charges her with a mission. The mission is to find and destroy the Holy Grail. (laughs) I will not go any further than that, but that is 
the conceit <laughs> of the show, Mrs. Davis. Uh, it is How many wonderful. floors of an elevator do you have to ride on in order to make that an elevator pitch? <laughs> it, 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 it gets even better. The first five minutes of the film of the show is about a guy named Schrodinger and his cat who are trapped on an island for 10 years. However, in this show, he gets off the island in the first five minutes. <laughs> Anyone who thinks this is not a commentary on everything Lindelof has had to deal with since creating Lost is in for a rude awakening because he pulls no punches uh, with um, Internet craze theories um, and, and just like everything under the sun. And what's crazy is tempered with some of the more comic sensibilities of, I guess, uh, the co-creator of the Big Bang Theory. It is a very unique aesthetic. It may not work for everyone, but if it works for you at all, it probably works like gangbusters. Uh, it is a, a delightfully zany, bonker show. Um, there are... <laughs> There are. Uh, there is a whole subplot with the the Pope being imprisoned and uh, replaced by a duplicate. Um, it just it just goes to places I've never imagined, and I'm really enjoying it. And uh, right now, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, I'm looking for things that just not allow me to turn my brain off, but I'll, but like rewire my brain to go. You were definitely not expecting this. So let's just sit and enjoy the ridiculousness of it. And that's what this does. But it does it with a wit and a verve and a polish that is really, really well done, at least for the five episodes that have come out so far. That's my recommendation, my John. <laughs> my God, that was a journey. Um, I had not even heard of this uh, prior to you telling me everything you've just told me. And now I need to find out if they... Most Peacock shows don't show up in Canada at all because they don't bother to give out Canadian rights or something. I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to start a rather intense Google search uh, after this episode's done. I guarantee you. Figure it out or uh, make use of good VPN because I, if, for my money, yeah. it's definitely worth checking out. Oh God, I'm going to have to. I need to do that and uh, poker face. My recommendation for today is going to be pretty much the complete antithesis in energy to what Chris just said. Um, I was recently, uh, though not intentionally. Um, uh, I was recently invited uh, by a friend and uh, occasional uh, podcast partner of uh, of her own uh, to go and watch the uh, to catch a screening of the movie Women Talking uh, by Sarah Pauly. Um, this was, of course, after she had won the the screen uh, the the Oscar for screenplay, and uh, like. Broadly speaking, I could say that uh, as a Canadian of a certain age, I am legally required to be a Sarah Pauly fan. Um, I've 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 literally watched her on Road to Avonlea since I was a child, so like it's 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 just part of the the air that I breathe. Um, but uh, uh, watching this movie, I I had read the book when the movie started to gain sort of some traction, um, and for me, I was fascinated by the prospect because it's a story about a, the women in a Mennonite colony, um, in South America who are, uh, sort of discussing what to do in the aftermath of a series of terrible attacks. Um, the movie is called women talking and very much that is what the movie is. Um, it is a movie that could be challenging to try and make, uh, 
a on the one hand cinematically interesting and all b also like you're talking about a group of women old young and in some case children talking about assault and rape for like a couple hours can be a real harrowing task uh to do um and the fact that it takes place in the in a in the cultural milieu that my family background is from i was somewhat drawn towards like this is weird because in the book there's a lot of you there's a lot of language used that is particular to like low german mennonites and some of that stuff would show up in my family where it would be like the occasional word or phrase where i, I know it mostly as like my dad you know calling someone a dumbass but in mennonite in mennonite german um and seeing all of that stuff that i had sort of transplanted into the book really had me interested to watch the movie now the movie itself it does deal with pacifism it does deal with the colony it does make the the actual experience of watching it is they they wrote the movie to be a bit more accessible um so you can understand the themes without having to be in on the ends of weird mennonite subculture shit um which i think works to the movie's uh advantage um especially if you want to win an oscar for it um this is a like I, I think that Polly as a filmmaker is able to make the like it would be it would be tempting to call this like a bottle episode of sorts where most of the action takes place in a in a in a single location, um, but she's able to structure the movie in ways that you do get moments to uh, you, you get things that break up the action you do get um, breaks from the. the um, from the conversation, the way that the violence is represented on screen is, is not gory or sensational while still being like brief, but terrifying the way, like the way that they choose to like the way that they choose to depict it is like, is it's effective without sort of lingering or being weird about it. And the way that the movie also and that could be too much, but the movie does actually a fairly good job of having moments that break the tension where everyone involved just sort of breaks down laughing because of, you know, gallows humor of the whole thing. Um, it is a movie that I like, I almost hesitate to recommend this, but mostly <laughs> just because it has so affected me internally that I don't know how to do it justice to talk about it. Uh, on a yeah. podcast or anything else um and i can't guarantee that other people would relate to the way that it exists in the same way but i it was like we talked about it for like three solid hours afterwards just mm. uh, the ways that it was firing things off in our brains so i don't know if this will help or not i have not seen the film yet and i very definitively say yet for a couple of reasons uh i i've heard a lot of people express very similar views of the film that you just did. Um, and I want to make sure that I am in the right kind of emotional frame of mind to be able to digest a film like that. I will say this. I am most definitely seeing this film um, because although for different reasons, um, I think it is safe to say that if you have ever seen a Sarah Polly film, if you, I mean, she's only done four at this point, I've seen the first three. 
uh, holy crap, is this a, you know, what an incredible turn from someone who you grew up with in like a child's thing. I, I first saw her come to notice in uh, her debut film, Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which there's a whole thing about with her uh, and her recollections of that movie and her experiences with Terry Gilliam. But um, I've seen her in a ton of films that I love, but it wasn't until I have seen her as a director um, particularly, um, I saw, a, I didn't see away from her until much later. So the first film I saw of hers was take this waltz with Michelle Williams and, uh, Seth Rogen. Um, and I love Michelle Williams. She's one of my favorite actresses. Um, and I really like Seth Rogen and it was such a beautifully kind of nuanced film that was really great at getting to the truth about relationships. And then I think I got the next one and I was, so I, I was primed to like her. And then I think it was you, John, who said, if you have not seen stories we tell, you need to see stories we tell. Stories we tell, yeah, that was. <laughs> I think that was. I think that was the first of her like feature film, like directed feature films that I had seen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I remember you telling me about that film, and I saw it, and uh, holy crap! Like at that point, I'm pretty much ready for anything that Sarah Polly wants to do, and it took ten years before we got to her her next feature film. Um, so I, I cannot wait to see it. Uh, I'm so glad that you're recommending it. Um, I would advise anyone who's seen any of her films to also, you know, find the fortitude and check it out. Cause I have heard nothing but just phenomenal raving about women talking. I, I can't wait to be a part of that experience to be able to talk about the film. So maybe we'll be able to do that at a later point uh, on a future episode. We can have like a quick kind of bonus chat about that. Between a couple of very different yet, I suspect, uh, similarly compelling recommendations. I think that uh, <laughs> it's time to bring this episode to a close. Uh, Chris, I really enjoy always getting to talk with you, but especially on episodes like this where it felt like we were actually like potentially working through our feelings uh, in real time during the podcast. That's always some of them. I think some of the most fun uh, times when we get to do that uh, together and uh, you know, appreciate uh, appreciate the company as always same here uh, always a pleasure to have this uh if nothing else then just to be able to have these conversations and and do things a lot like that um there are some episodes where we kind of very quickly come with a a set of perspectives uh but my favorite ones are always the ones where we we kind of form those perspectives uh via dialogue so appreciate it as always john and looking forward to the next time we do it Absolutely. In the meantime, uh, if you want to go to, to cinemaduel.com and find anything we happen to find interesting over there. Um, John breaking in here with one last plug. Uh, Chris and I were recent guests on uh, Diary of Doom's Movies from Green Hell series. Uh, you may remember Dylan was on our podcast, episode 20, Monster Movies. And this time around, he invited Chris and I on to talk about the movie The Gate. It's a good time. And so the link to that episode will be in our show notes. But in the meantime, yeah, we'll catch you next time. Bye.